G'day and welcome to Happy Little Histories, the show that wonders why Australians do the things we do and looks back at history to find out. Why are we obsessed with cricket and footy? What makes us rock like ACDC and the chats? Why do we love to get on the beers? And what's with all the nicknames and swearing? Join us this series to answer these questions and so many more with fun facts, stories and great guests galore. I'm your host, Jordan Funker. I'm a historian, teacher, and I've seen every episode of early 2000s TV series Blue Water High too many times to count, which I'm hoping might finally come in handy this week because we're zipping up our wetsuits to find out why Australians love surfing. Globally, surfing is a multi-billion dollar industry with over 20 million regular participants, about 3 million of whom call Australia home, more than 1 in 10 of our population. But when and where did surfing come from? How did it get so popular? How did surf lifesaving start? And why do I sound so tragically uncool whenever I try to talk about surfing? Like, cowabunga, dude! This is the happy little history of surfing. You may have an image of surfers in the 1960s in your head. Blonde-haired, blue-eyed, Bondi rescue types. And that feels like it could be the beginning of the salt-sprayed sport we all know and love. But surfing goes back much further than that. In fact, we can start our surfing safari as far back as 2000 BC. Of course, it's always difficult, if not impossible, to know anything for certain in times that ancient. But evidence suggests 2000 BC is probably when humans started migrating around Asia and the Pacific. And Polynesian peoples established themselves in places like Aotearoa, or New Zealand, Tonga, Samoa, Tahiti, and many islands in between. It was popular among these Polynesian peoples, whose lives revolved around the ocean in many ways, whether swimming, canoeing or fishing, to do what we might today call bodyboarding or boogieboarding, lying on their bellies on wooden boards generally called paipo in Hawaiian. Many call this wave riding. We have formal written evidence of wave riding in Tahiti from the diary of Joseph Banks aboard the Endeavour in 1769. He observes, Their chief amusement was carried on by the stern of an old canoe. With this before them, they swam out as far as the outermost breach. Then one or two would get into it, and opposing the blunt end to the breaking wave were hurried in with incredible swiftness, sometimes carried almost ashore. Samoans and Tongans were also known to catch waves using canoe hulls and planks of wood. As expert seafarers, Polynesian peoples and their customs quickly spread, and soon Hawaii became most closely associated with the activity. Again, we have formal evidence of this in a section of the diary of Captain James Cook, written by Lieutenant James King aboard the Discovery in 1779. Observing locals at Kealakakua Bay on the Big Island's Kona coast, he describes in detail a diversion most common upon the water, where 20 or 30 men would lay themselves flat upon an oval piece of plank about their size and breadth. They keep their legs close on top of it, and their arms are used to guide the plank. They wait the time of the greatest swell that sets on the shore, and altogether push forward with their arms to keep on its top. It sends them in with the most astonishing velocity, and the great art is to guide the plank so as always to keep it in a proper direction on top of the swell. He notes how stoked they seem to be to be doing this, hyping each other up when they nail it, although obviously not in those words. Wave riding had spiritual and social significance in Hawaiian cultures. Offerings were made for trees selected to be carved into boards, with rituals and songs accompanying the process. The kahuna, a wise man or priest, would chant blessings over new boards to protect riders and bring the surf up. 
Hawaiian laws or code called kapu determined who could ride where and on which kind of board. Commoners would generally ride on 12-foot boards, over 3 metres, while the upper class, so to speak, rode on 24-footers, over 7 metres long. Imagine carrying that! Not to mention they could weigh 80 kilograms, 175 pounds or more. With all this in mind, it's unsurprising that Hawaiian leaders often proved themselves by handling big waves, and it's thought that Tahitians and Samoans may have used surfing as a method of training their warriors too. Unfortunately, the arrival of missionaries to Hawaii and other islands in the early 1800s largely destroyed the sacred significance of surfing, stripping away its rituals and forcing the local peoples to spend their time working and reading instead of practicing their own cultures. Still, surfing continued to develop and remained a popular pursuit in its own right, becoming increasingly recognised across Europe and North America. In 1886, famous author Mark Twain visited Hawaii and gave surfing a crack, albeit a terrible one, writing, I made a failure of it. The board struck the shore in three quarters of a second without any cargo, and I struck the bottom about the same time with a couple of barrels of water in me. Historians like Joel K. Bourne suggest that surfing may have taken off and reached its pinnacle in Hawaii so well because, in addition to having the ideal weather and water conditions, Hawaiians had productive taro and fish farms that kept them extremely fit and able to take a number of months off every year to surf. But what about Australia? The earliest written evidence for wave riding here seems to be Charles Steedman in his 1867 book Manual of Swimming, including bathing, plunging, diving, floating, scientific swimming, training, drowning, and rescuing. Quite the snappy title, right? He includes a chapter titled Native Swimming, Wave Mechanics, and Surfboards. In this, he describes a small deal board, deal meaning pine, about five feet long, one foot broad, and an inch thick, termed a surfboard of considerable help to a swimmer who is crossing water on which the foam is deep, for by its aid he can raise his head to breathe above the surface of the foam. In 1867, Charles Steedman also describes a group of Aboriginal people observed body surfing. A party will run to meet the breakers, he writes. Extended in a line, they will stand to meet the incoming of the sea and will perform the most amusing feats as the force of the breakers drives them back to the shore. On the approach of a large wave, they will rise on the crest... So while we don't necessarily have evidence for coastal Aboriginal peoples using boards in the same way as Polynesians and Hawaiians, it's safe to say there were skilled swimmers who used some of the same techniques. One famous body surfer in Australia throughout the 1890s was Pacific Islander Tommy Tanner. He might have been born in the Marshall Islands in the 1870s, but unfortunately we have little specific evidence. Tommy Tanner is credited with introducing body surfing or surf shooting to the wider population at Sydney beaches a pastime which became hugely popular until the mid-20th century. Tommy Tanner was often part of the aquatic spectacles that were held in places like Manly and D.Y. While they have disappeared largely from our culture now, historian Rosslyn Poignant describes 1900s beaches as show spaces, almost like circuses, where thousands would gather to watch acts like trick swimming and high dives. Solomon Islander Alec Wickman was a shining star, in 1918, attracting a crowd of 70,000 people when he dived 62 metres, that's 205 feet, into the Yarra River. Alec Wickman is also known as a pioneer of the front crawl, or freestyle swimming stroke. 
These popular demonstrations massively impacted the Australian public and were ultimately responsible for the rapid spread of surfing and surf-related activities, especially once Duke Kahanamoku, a young Hawaiian man considered the father of modern surfing, became involved. But we'll meet him soon. First, let me throw a total spanner in the works here and tell you there's some serious controversy in the world of surf history about whether the Polynesians and Hawaiians were really the first surfers. Some South Americans suggest, and often passionately insist, that surfing actually comes from Peru. There is evidence, including some pretty amazing pottery dating back to 1000 BC, that pre-Incan societies, including the Moche, Chimu and Viru peoples of northern Peru, were absolute fiends for the old wave riding. Instead of wood planks or boards, however, they used what the Spaniards called cabalitos de tortura, which means little reed horses. These cabalitos were essentially small boats or rafts, made from reeds bound together into long, almost canoe-like bundles. Used for fishing, as these coastal Peruvian peoples fished to live and lived to fish, cabalitos could be sat upon, like a horse, hence the name, or stood atop. Sounds like surfing, right? Well, the controversy is that it may have instead been the precursor to stand-up paddleboarding, as the fishermen used a long stick, paddle or oar, to manoeuvre. Another interesting idea, suggested by Peruvian historian José Antonio del Busto, among others, is that the ancient Peruvian and Inca peoples may have travelled to Polynesia and vice versa, and the resulting cultural interchange might mean that surfing has a lot in common with both. Nevertheless, cabalitos de tortura are still used today, and well worth a quick Google image search. Okay, we're almost ready for surfing to take on its modern standing up style and to get to know Duke Kahanamoku and some other legends of the sport. But just before we do, let's paddle out and play a little game I like to call Slang Shot. Slang Shot is a regular segment where an expert guest quizzes us on some slang words they've chosen and we get a shot to see how many we can guess right. This week, we're joined by Queensland surfer and all-round great bloke, Nathan Brown. So how long have you been surfing for, Nathan? Yeah, um, I've been surfing for almost as long as I can remember. So when I was a kid, I remember Dad used to surf, so he'd, um, he'd take me out and you know push me along on my board and sort of got me into it. So it's been a while. That's awesome. And what do you love about surfing? There's a lot of things to love about surfing. Um, it's a pretty awesome way to get out and... Um, it's a great way to meet people and to hang out. We've got a good crew that we surf with and um, also really good just to get in the water for good exercise. It's really good health and, um, yeah, it's really nice, to be honest. It's a good way to get out and see things and meet people and keep fit. Awesome. Well, you've come up with five surfing slang words to test us all. Let's see how we do. <laughs> I'll start off with an easy one for you. Um, so the first one I've got is relating to the equipment. So I've got leggy. Leggy. Okay. Yeah. What's a leggy? Oh, first I was thinking, you know, someone uh, with nice long legs, but you said a piece of equipment. So I'm thinking that's got to be the leg rope that ties you onto the board. Yeah, that's it. That's it. You're onto it. Good start. <laughs> Stops you from losing your board. Number two is a good term for you. It's, it's a drop-in. What's a drop-in? Drop-in. I think, is that when you get onto a wave? Like when the wave's coming and you've got to, you've got to drop in so that you can actually surf it? Uh, it's a good idea, but um, no, not quite. 
So a drop-in is essentially when someone else steals your wave Ooh. and they, they drop in and take the wave off of you. Dang. Yeah, so it sort of depends on, you know, who's on the wave first or who's closest to where the wave's breaking and if someone sneaks in in front of you or when they're already on, that's a drop-in, they drop in on you. All right, number three, I've got to get back into it. Yeah, number three. Okay, number three <laughs> is the closeout. Closeout. What's a closeout. Is a closeout like a wipeout? Is it when you when you fall off? No, you're thinking wipeout. Oh, closeout yeah. is something different. I don't know. Have one more guess. Have one more guess. I'm a guess. Oh, closeout. Is it when you do it successfully, like the opposite of a wipeout? So you you maybe you make it into the shore. Uh, no. No, <laughs> you're, you're having a good guess, but no. <laughs> a closeout is basically when a wave doesn't peel off to the side and. Instead of it sort of crumbling, the whole thing sort of just goes at once. So you don't have anywhere to go. The wave closes out, sort of shuts off in one go. Oh, right. Okay, I think I can picture that. Yeah, you're thinking surfing, uh, like a surfer on the wave rather than mm-hmm. what the wave was doing. You actually weren't too far off. Oh, come on, I've got to get more than one right. What's the next one? <laughs> um, okay, the next one is punt. Punt. I'm thinking punt yeah. like in footy um, or having a punt like a like gambling or something punt in surfing oh i don't know does it mean sort of the same thing having a punt you're having it you're having a go partly but there's a bit more to it essentially you're having a go at something that's normally a little bit harder so if there's a section of a wave that walls up really steep and has sort of a ramp area having a punt would be sort of hitting that ramp area and maybe trying to get a bit of airborne trying to launch yourself up into the air and do an air completely wrong <laughs> all right we got one more right yeah i got one more for you you might be able to get this one i reckon i've got faith in you this one's a kook, kook. What is a kook? i think i've heard this is it someone who's either very new to or very bad at surfing yeah look i think you're pretty much on the money there oh in my terms yeah someone who has no idea what they're doing and is out there it, it even sort of refers to, like, your mate you're surfing with could be a kook. He, he could kook the wave, you know, if he stuffed it up. Right, so so, yeah. so I've basically kooked this quiz. I've got, I've, I've gone and made a real kook of myself trying to guess these words right. <laughs> well, no, look, you got kook right, so that makes you slightly less of a kook. Yes. Is there a word for, like, really awesome or a legend? Uh, we normally call that someone who shreds. They're really good, or a shredder. Oh, well, you've you've absolutely shredded this, Nathan. Thank you very much. <laughs> no worries. Thanks for having me. How did you go at home? Five from five, I hope. Now let's dive back into the history. Duke Kahanamoku, the father of modern surfing, who championed and popularised the sport on a global scale. He was born in Honolulu, Hawaii in 1890 and was basically the Michael Phelps of his day. He won five Olympic swimming medals and became a sensation, travelling the world performing surfing demonstrations that people couldn't get enough of. Interestingly, Duke was also an accomplished ukulele player and actor, appearing as an extra in 25 Hollywood films. He toured Australia in the summer of 1914-1915 with hugely popular demonstrations at Sydney's biggest beaches. At Freshwater in January 1915, one of Australian surfing's most iconic moments took place. Duke surfed tandem with 15-year-old Sydney girl Isabel Letham stood atop his shoulders. The moment rocketed young Isabel to fame of her own. She would go on to be widely recognised as Australia's first female surfer, with his successful career as a swimming coach and surf teacher in California. 
as for the first Australian male surfer, that honour most likely goes to Tommy Walker. A keen body surfer in the style of Tommy Tanner, Tommy Walker visited Hawaii as a seaman in 1908 and in 1909 brought back to Australia a 10-foot pine surfboard he bought for $2, which adjusted for inflation is about $60 now. It was the first proper Hawaiian surfboard in Australia, this being five years before Duke Kahanamoku hit our shores, and Walker became well known for riding it, showing off his skills in demonstrations like the Freshwater Carnival. Australia's first surfing photograph, taken at Yamba in 1912 by Osric Burston Notley, is a rather hilarious image of Tommy Walker performing a headstand on the board. Surfing took Australia like a tidal wave, thanks to Walker, Letham and of course the superstar Duke Kahanamoku. By 1919, the first national surfing championship was held, with Claude West the winner, and with growing popularity came advanced surf technology. 1934 saw the first hollow surfboard, 1935 added fins, and in 1956, the Melbourne Olympic Games brought teams of American lifeguards with new, shorter, easy-to-use balsa boards called Malibus. This was a turning point. Since Malibus were smaller and lighter, they were easier to transport. Where previously boards would have had to be kept at the beach due to the impracticality of taking them elsewhere, the Malibu style increased mobility and opened the sport up to a new audience. Foam and fiberglass boards also appeared in the 1950s. Leg ropes were added in 1971 by Jack O'Neill, who also popularised the wetsuit. And in 1981, Australian Simon Anderson introduced the thruster, or three-finned surfboard. And that pretty much takes us up to today. It's hard to separate the history of Australian surfing from surf lifesaving. A pillar of our largely coastal society, Surf Lifesaving Australia today boasts 174,000 members across 314 clubs, making 10,000 rescues a year. The first volunteer lifesaving clubs popped up in Sydney around 1907 in response to the relaxation of laws which had prohibited daylight bathing. Swimming in the daytime? What a scandal! This change meant that more people were swimming, and therefore drowning, so life-saving clubs were the solution. In October 1907, nine clubs got together to officially form the Surf Bathing Association, which steadily grew and in 1923 changed its name to the Surf Life-Saving Association of Australia. Nippers programs, teaching surf life-saving skills to children, started popping up from the 20s, with a national program rolled out in 1960, and today there are over 40,000 nippers sprinting up and down that hot white sand every weekend. If you've ever swum at an Australian beach, you will no doubt be familiar with the red and yellow flags used by lifesavers to indicate the zone they patrol. But have you ever wondered why they're red and yellow? This comes from the International Code of Signals, used by ships to communicate, where the letter O, meaning man overboard, is represented by, you guessed it, a red and yellow flag. It was adopted by the Lifesavers in 1935. Always a welcome sight. Now it's time for the Poetry Pocket. Like Slangshot, Poetry Pocket is a regular segment where I'll reach into my pockets and pull out a poem that relates to the week's theme. I think you can tell a lot about a time period or a particular subject by the kind of poetry that gets written about it, and the emotions and experiences poems are able to convey can often tell us just as much as facts and statistics can. So this week, our poem is from a 1920 book called A Song of Hawaii by Lewis Edwin Capps. It's called The Surf Rider. 
With body bronzed in the tropic sun, slowly the surf rider slipped from the shore, gliding face down on his slender board, straight for the reef where the breakers roar. And now in the tumbling tide he waits, while the smaller waves roll by, scorning to challenge the lesser surf, choosing with only the great to vie. But the water is swift and high and strong, and his board is tossed like a chip in the air, while the rider, quick as a lightning flash, dives for his life, not a moment to spare. And again he is up, and again in his place, with the breakers rolling by. For a sportsman true is this son of Neptune, with a heart that will do or die. Like a seabird he rests in the far away, then suddenly rises with arms outspread, while the spray at his feet in a silver shower curves like the wings of the gull overhead. And out from the smother and out from the foam, straight as an arrow he speeds away, chased by the breaker's rolling crest, a statue bathed in a whirl of spray. Comes with the speed of an aeroplane till the breaker sinks in a quiet tide. The surfer drops near the sandy shore, then back to the reef for another ride. Well, there you go. An image of surfing over 100 years old, but no different than you'd expect. But here's something that is different from what you might expect, though. A final fun fact before we wrap up. At Bondi Beach in 2015, 320 surfers dressed as Santa Claus took part in the Guinness World Record for the largest surf lesson. In full red suits and bobbled hats, the Santas pulled the merry mass gathering in aid of mental health charities, including One Wave, which helps participants boost their mental health through surfing. All right. When we end each episode, we ask a question that one Miss Alicia Moore, better known as the singer Pink, put so eloquently in her 2008 hit song, So What? I'm a firm believer in the idea of not just learning history for its own sake, but asking what it all means for our lives today. What does it say about our culture? So we know about the history of surfing in Australia now. So what? Let's see what surfer Nathan Brown has to say. I reckon that surfing is a big part of Australian culture and I'd say probably mostly just because of Australia, the location has so many nice beaches to offer and it's sort of seen as an Aussie thing, better be down there enjoying the sun on the beach and I think there's just so much on offer that sort of become its own thing and there's just so many places to go and so many nice spots and different breaks around Australia that it's sort of developed into that place that people love to go. I think it's sort of become a bit of an icon for Australia. Perfect. And cut. I think Nathan has shredded this once again. In a country so gorgeous and girt by sea, it seems only natural that surfing has been and will continue to be an important part of our culture. It's a way to celebrate the world around us, to face the challenges it presents and deepen our appreciation and understanding of the ocean, which both gives and takes life. Surfing connects Australians with the great outdoors and with one another. Well, thanks for joining us this week on Happy Little Histories. As it's the first episode, I thought I'd quickly explain the name and logo, particularly for any international listeners. You may be aware of Vegemite, a thick black savoury spread we love to slather on toast or sandwiches, maybe with a nice slice of cheese, but most other countries seem to believe tastes so bad it must be some sort of prank. (laughs) Well, in 1954, advertising executive Alan Weeks gave Vegemite an unbelievably catchy jingle called Happy Little Vegemites that would feature in dozens of commercial iterations over the decades, firmly earworming its way into the nation's consciousness ever since. 
As an upbeat, short-form podcast about Australian culture, I thought Happy Little Vegemites was a perfect reference. History for breakfast, lunch and tea. (laughs) Huge thanks to the brilliant Penny Hodgson for our theme music and to the sunny coast coolists, our guest surf expert, Nathan Brown. If you'd like to get in touch or stay up to date with all things history, you can follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Happy Little Histories or send us an email to happylittlehistories at gmail.com. Until next time, stay happy.